Hi, and welcome to Season 5, Episode 2 of My Words, Our Journey, the podcast, and the novel, Defender of Children 2. My name is Monty. I'm your host and author. Let's begin today with Chapter 7. There was a little conversation from the jail to the hotel. They would be meeting with the attorney and his team, and there would be plenty of talking. Each was sure. The conference room had been reserved for the next two months. Everyone would have a room at the Residence Inn by Marriott, including Leonard, Kenny, and Sean. It took Leonard less than 10 minutes to determine he'd move in if his friends would pay the bill each month. The hotel was only two blocks from the beach, three-minute walk from his favorite restaurant and bar. Had a free breakfast, pool, laundry, fitness area. He would never see. What else could a man ask for? Oh, and a lobby bar of its own, and a fire pit outside. Stay here for the next two months? Yes, please. He needed to find a little levity. He knew much of his time would be spent trying to find where he screwed up, how he was extorted, and how they could possibly fix it so he could stay out of prison for the rest of his life. The meeting room was set up, just like Leonard knew it would be, Command Central, where Kenny and Sean would be right at home. The first order of business? Everyone was told that only Remy O'Neill would be the only one, the only member of the team to speak with the press under any circumstances. Any and all questions? Concerns from the police? media were to be directed to Remy and Remy alone. The rest of the group could make decisions on lunch and dinner orders, and that was about it from the sounds of it. That was fine with Leonard. He was always a much better follower, but he wondered how Kenny and Sean were going to handle that rule. Only time would tell. It'd be fun to watch, he thought. So, the first half hour of the meeting was pretty humbling for Leonard, more than he anticipated. On a whiteboard, Remy, or the man Leonard now called the devil, had one of his assistants write down the items they all agreed, as a group, were opportunities that whoever framed him had most likely taken advantage of. The list included, spent too much time at the bar, left his truck unlocked, left his house unlocked, left his wallet in the truck, left his wallet on the bar when he went to the bathroom, had left his wallet at the bar over the weekend more than once, went out on the boat for days, leaving the house and truck vulnerable. His passwords were 1234 or 4321 and the rest was not much better. He was a mess, an easy target. At least they hadn't mentioned the fact he left his gun between his mattress and his box springs. Yet. It had not taken long for the media to find out their location and the players involved. The media storm followed quickly. Kenny and Sean may not be popular with the local police department, but the media loved them. They could never get enough. Per the prearranged plan, Remy O'Neill addressed the crowd that gathered on the lawn of the hotel. He established his control, his belief in the innocence of his client, and his belief in the system. The three bullet points he was best known for. He took no questions, acknowledged no one yelling at him, and walked back inside. Promised no updates or further communication, leaving them guessing. The killer watched from the back of the crowd. Brown suit, black shoes, dark sunglasses, and a cigarette. Just another interested party in the biggest story in the county. Of course he had known about the two detectives and their friendship with Leonard. That would be taken care of, if need be. But he was impressed by the caliber of defense the team had put together in such a short time. Remy O'Neill was good as they come. A no-nonsense, hard-nosed, straight shooter that would go to great depths to battle for his client, fight vigorously, sleep little, and demand much from those involved on both sides of the aisle. He was, in a few words, legendary. Someone must have really called in a favor to have this guy in the front lawn of the Marriott in such a short order. Good to know. 
Leonard has such influential friends, the killer thought. Remy was not the top of his class in anything, and he'd be the first to tell anyone that asked. But he was a pit bull from the go. He would fight like his mother's life was on the line to get a stranger out of a speeding ticket when he was young. He built a name for himself over time, met the right woman, took the right classes, followed God's plan. It depended on the day in the interview now what he would contribute to his overall success to. Today, he only took cases he wanted to. He had a team that did most of the work, the day-to-day grind. He just still loved every aspect of the job. He was just a little too old to do it all, and today's judicial system was just too fast for anyone anymore. So when he got to the courtroom, he was known to slow it down, take the jury on a journey with him, and when it was over, they rarely had any choice other than to vote whatever this crazy Uncle Remy wanted them to. His court work was masterful. Two of his most famous cases are still studied in universities around the world. One he would be proud of, the other not so much. Chapter 8 The killer walked back to his truck and thought about those that had lost their lives to bring them all to this spot on this exact day. Number 7, 8, and 9 were uneventful, especially in comparison to some of the others. He remembered all their names and how they died out of respect. Some were just more memorable than others. Ten was one of those. By the time it was Eddie Emmett's turn, he was not leaving the house. The little pervert was scared to death, and for good reason. He was a banned man who didn't care if he hurt young boys or girls. He just liked to hurt kids. He was also very smart. In the last three places he lived, eight children had been found dead, and while authorities in all three precincts thought he was their main man, none could prove it. He was evil, careful, and smart. Good for him. Bad for the children and the police. Not ideal for the killer either, but he was not going to let Eddie get away just because he would be hard. There was no online presence to speak of. As mentioned before, he was not leaving the house that he shared with his mother, so the killer was going to have to be creative. Creative is what he did. On a Thursday, Eddie's mother received a coupon for a dinner for two free at one of the new Italian restaurants that had just opened around the corner about two weeks ago. The hope was that she would bite, literally, and that she would force her son to go with her. She did, and they had a wonderful last meal together on the killer's dime. He also assumed correctly that they would walk to the restaurant. That was when he would attack on the way home. Mom would be a witness, but he was not concerned. She was half blind. She would be scared. It would be dark. He made sure of that by taking out the streetlight where he would attack. It would have gone perfectly if Mom had cooperated, but she was feisty for her age. When she and her son passed the large oak, the killer stepped out and pounded the unsuspected Eddie on the back of his head. He was off just a little and caught the side of his head and upper shoulder, stunning him briefly, but not immobilizing him by any stretch. As he turned, the second blow took out his legs, and the third his windpipe. That's when Mom went crazy with the mace. Crazy. Stepping over her son and trying her best to reach into the stranger's face. The easy route would have been to punch her in the face or take her out with the bat, but he did not want to do that, even less after he saw the fire she had still held in her gut. That being said, he did push her down into the shrubs of the neighbor's yard and swung the bat one last time at her son, for good measure, dropped a note on his chest. When he was driving off, he could see a couple of lights coming on the house with the shrubs and the old lady regaining her stance. She'd be okay, he thought. The killer smiled as he thought about the old lady. She had been just as fiery in the newspaper after the killing. She would tell everyone 
that would listen that her son was a good boy. Did she believe that? Didn't matter. Not to the children or their families. Chapter 9 Kenny Costco had gone to his room for a quick refresher before the next round of sessions. He was going to go through the evidence the team knew of so far with a couple of the folks from the attorney's office. While in his room, he took the opportunity to shoot Renee a text. They knew better than to call each other during the day. They were both high achievers. So it was early morning, early evenings when they found time for each other. Kenny and Renee had found each other through one of her friends who happened to be one of his neighbors. As the story goes, the friend invited her over for a glass of wine and a walk through the dog park. When she knew Kenny was in town, she also had known his routine for walking the dog through the park. So, fate found that it took care of the rest. He took one look at Renee and forgotten about any other woman he was dating, ever had dated, and well, you know. So, two years later, they were engaged, in a business together, and currently too far apart for his liking. Renee was helping a friend with a redesign of a luxury apartment in downtown Manhattan at the moment. That was her background, interior design, and she was good. So good that they had purchased their first upscale Airbnb a year ago, and now had six already, all high-end, reviews for days, booked out for months. Who would have known? Well, Renee did. She had found the locations, did all the designs, and was already ready for the next six. Kenny was happy with six, but she wanted six more. They'd have six more. He had no doubt. His text was brief. Someone is thinking of you. He expected no reply for a while. Something to look forward to later, he thought. She wanted a destination wedding, so the plans were made for the fall, and they'd be traveling with 28 of their closest friends and family to Turks and Caicos, an island chain, he had been told, that was known for its white sandy beaches and crystal clear waters. If she was happy, he was happy. Leonard would be making the trip, right? Kenny said to himself. He had to be free by then. There was no way he could. Kenny let the sentence fade there. If he and Sean could not get an innocent friend and once partner off, then they'd have to close their doors for good. He was not looking forward to seeing the evidence, however. He had overheard a couple of the younger interns talking about all that the DA had. Ugh. Sean was on the phone, too. He's speaking with Jill. Priscilla was still too young and knew nothing of Leonard, so there was no discussion on that topic. But Fridge was acting up again, and that was a topic of concern and conversation. Right after Jill wanted an update on everything that had happened so far, and what he thought would happen the rest of the evening. He knew it was hard for her being home and him with all the excitement that was going on. After promising to text their handyman as soon as they hung up, he filled her in on everything he knew so far, even about all the evidence he was hearing about. Kenny would update him later. He would be going over the files of the 13 victims in the case. His goal? To at least get a first pass on all 13 before his head hit the pillow. Jill was a trooper. He could tell she sensed this case could take a long time to resolve. If that was the case, he and Kenny had already talked about a plan. Chapter 10 The killer's retirement party had only been three weeks ago, and he was already fidgety. The last year had given him new life, a purpose. Now he was more like a spectator than a participant, and he was not adjusting well. While the office may consider him too old to be of any value, he knew he still had it. Hadn't the last year proven that? He had watched too many a good man and woman leave the job that they loved, hated, or just tolerated, only to be left with an emptiness they could never fill. Now that was completely happening to him. How would he fill his time? He wasn't poor, but golf and fishing, those were money hobbies. 
tennis, pickleball, those took a back in knees that were better taken care of over the years. The few people that knew him and knew him well knew he wasn't going to be gardening, cooking, reading, so his list was getting shorter. While he continued to figure out life after work, he would follow the case before him, make sure there was no additional work necessary. He was hoping there wouldn't be. The case had been put in a nice little box with a beautiful ribbon around it. Hadn't it? Reflecting, he started to process number 11 for the upteenth time. Number 11 was curious. Not only was he the oldest of the bunch, but he was not actually on the original list of 13. It was not killed by the killer. The killer was, of course, taking the blame, or credit, depending on your perspective, but it was not part of the plan. The number had stayed 13 because one of the men on the list had died of natural causes while eating a meatball sub and having a cold beer with friends. Not the end he deserved, the killer grimaced, but the one fate chose. So in the end, the number 13 had remained, but one was not like the others. Flint Durant had taken the number 11 spot, a position he had earned, by the way. Sleazy was being polite. Flint was a guy no one wanted to be around, a dog with fleas, a reputation and a rap sheet that did not do him justice. But he was again one that kept slipping through the cracks, ended up back on the street, not because he was some kind of mastermind criminal, he wasn't, but he was lucky, and luck carried him a long way, through his 80s before he was taken from this earth. In his lifetime, he had been convicted or accused of numerous crimes, ranging from simple possession, armed robbery to kidnapping, and finally murder. But still, the most time he'd spent in one stretch was three years. He had not been on the killer's radar because he was two counties removed from the radius that they were searching. But, of course, the authorities did not know that. Clint Durant was found wearing only his night robe. Feet were bare, even though the night temperatures had fallen well below 40 degrees at the time of his death. Blunt force trauma to the right side of the head was the official cause of death. It never would have been connected to the other cases if not for the note that was pinned to the robe that he wore. The body had been found along the busy interstate, as if trash was being discarded without remorse. The real killer would most likely never be caught for that one. The killer didn't care, and other evil presents removed as far as he was concerned. And let's be honest, 12 or 13 wasn't going to make a bit of difference to Leonard's sentence. He would die in prison long before his time had been served. Chapter 11 Everyone was going to be quick to broadcast whatever they thought would stick when it came to the Defender of Children case. Trish was not going to do that with this one. Something was off. She was determined to figure out what that was. So, while others threw a camera and mic in front of anyone and everyone, she listened, watched, and studied everything that was going on. No matter how many times she tried to convince herself or prove herself wrong, she couldn't shake the feeling that this deserved something, something more. How could she not give some credence to that? After all, that feeling had gotten her through high school, college, and helped her navigate an industry that was dominated by men. Maybe not unscathed, but not broken and stronger because of her experiences. There was a story. She was going to find it. She couldn't say she always did. Somehow, this one felt different. But for all her feelings, Trish had no idea she had been followed for the last few weeks, since her name had come up on a short list of concerns. A list that now only contained a few names. It was a list you didn't want to be on. The young reporter would only be taken out if it became apparent she was going to get too close. Chances were not going to be taken. That decision had been made early on. 
Surveillance had been set up to ensure if she was to stumble onto something, action could be taken quickly. Trish had first met Leonard at one of the local restaurants when she was picking up a little extra money. He wasn't the biggest talker, but he was always pleasant and polite, not words she could use to describe many. When she later ran into him at one of the many bars along the strip, he had recognized her and actually bought her and her girlfriend a drink and had left before she could even say thank you. So, when her brother told her in confidence that he was hearing rumors the old detective was somehow involved in the murders, she just knew that couldn't be right. just didn't make any sense to her. Ever since, Trish had been focused on finding out the real story, the podcast-worthy story that would put her name out there and help her to make some real money for once. Tim, her older brother, had no idea the information he had shared would start his little sis on a path that her family could only hope she finds her way home from. It would be a dangerous game between killer and authorities with lives at stake, and she could only get in the way. Trish was not spending her days at the hotel just waiting for the next breadcrumb, like some of her colleagues. No, she was hitting the streets, listening to every conspiracy theory, rumor, etc. The truth lies somewhere in the chaos. But now she was raiding with the rest of the masses. There was some buzz about another appearance by the muddy Remy, and she didn't have anything better to do than wait for an egotistical old guy to keep them all waiting like fish in a tank, just waiting for that speck of food. As she waited, Trish had that feeling that someone was watching her. Not in the creepy guy kind of sense, or even the okay guy just trying to build up some courage, but something else, a feeling she had a couple of times recently, but honestly, she had not spotted anyone out of the ordinary, or a different car, anything like in the movies. The killer had a keen sense too, and he knew he'd better back off a little, and with a few steps, he was near the back of the crowd, head slightly tilted down and smoking. If a tail was spotted, and it caused her to take even further, like, say, get the cops involved, then there would be no choice, and he liked choices. Chapter 12 The killer felt the need to make a bigger statement with number 12 and 13. As news cycles ebb and flow, he knew the story would fall behind some other event, whether it be Hollywood scandal or a political misstep. It was important that this did not happen in this instance. So, number 12 and 13 would go a long way to ensure that. Number 12, Cecil Francis, a 58-year-old man, originally from upstate New York, but had bounced around the southeast for several of the last years. Cecil had been blessed, or cursed depending on who you asked, to have inherited several million dollars when his parents were killed by a drunk driver when he was 14 years old. Cecil had finished high school only because it was stipulated in the will, but he told anyone that would listen that he would be spending his money once he was 18. Living his best life in the South by only one rule, do what makes him happy. Unfortunately, as he got older, the thing that made him happier was getting younger. Cecil liked little boys and girls. That is what made him happy, and he never forgot rule number one. And the killer had never forgotten Cecil. They had met several years earlier under different circumstances. Even then, long before the killer would have been known as the killer, spending any amount of time with the man caused him to have the worst taste in his mouth. He had followed the exploits of this man from afar, hoping someday he would get good news that he had died a horrible death, never imagined that it would be at his hand, but thankful for the opportunity. It was still fresh in the killer's mind. It may be one of those events that never faded, and he would be okay with that. Cecil had been followed to a, first to a strip club, 
then to a couple of seedy bars, and finally to an 18 and under club that was known to look the other way and let young teens enter the establishment. He had walked in smoking and carrying a full bottle of tequila. The club was smoke and alcohol free. Cecil's rules, remember? The club had been there for many years, and the killer had visited the establishment when he was younger. So unless something major had changed, he knew exactly where the big spender would be hanging out. There was only one executive suite, high above the dance floor, with a clear view of all the happenings below. The suite had its own bar, small dance floor, private bathrooms, and soundproof. The killer was not one that blended well with others, so it took some effort to make him look forgettable. He only waited a matter of moments before he entered the club through a side door that was not completely closed so the staff that smoked could easily come and go from the alley. He had also noticed a fire escape off the back side of the building and decided that was probably most likely from the suite. The music was loud, the dance floor packed, and the stairwell to the suite was unattended. He knew the door would most likely be unlocked. Cecil had no cares in the world, no reason to lock a door, no reason to make sure that he hadn't been followed, and if by chance he carried a weapon, he would bet it would not be loaded. It was part of his job to know people, and he was good at his job. Turning the knob, he felt the door give a little. He pressed his way in and found the pervert was not alone. There was at least a dozen of very young people dancing, laughing, smoking, and drinking. Cecil was on the couch just off to the right, entranced by his guests, not paying a bit of attention to the grown man that had walked in on his own party. Again, why would he? He was untouchable. The killer stuck to the walls and into the shadows. If he was unnoticed, or at least considered not a threat, the better for him. Experience told him there was at least a two-person job, maybe three with all that was happening, but that was not in the cards this particular evening, so he continued. He was standing directly behind the target, statue-like, determining how the next few moments would go. Then the door opened and more youth poured in. This caused the killer to decide to act. The knife had dual purpose. First and foremost, it was extremely sharp and would do the job nicely. Secondly, it had come from the home of... The Patsy. You guessed it. Leonard. The radio was meant to be a spectacle, so the first cut only took off the creep's left ear. The scream was loud enough to get the attention of all in the room. The scene must have looked like something from a movie. The music did not stop, but the song was now more aggressive and the teens all stared wide towards the back of the room. The second cut was to the forehead, so the blow would run down his face. It'd be painful, but it would look much worse than it was. The crowd groaned in one accord while the killer made the man stand up. They walked over to the wall-mounted volume control and turned the music down. That's when the killer whispered in the man's ear, Confess your sins and I'll make this go much easier for you. Then he shouted, I'm sorry you've put yourselves in this situation, but we're all here, so let's proceed quickly, shall we? Before you is a man known to prey on young folks like yourselves. He'll use money, drugs, smokes, alcohol, and whatever else he thinks will get him what he wants. I lost everything because of a man like this. Now I've asked him to confess his sins before you. My hope is that at least one of you will decide never to put yourselves in a situation like this ever again. So Cecil, now you have our attention. Speak. Blood was now all over the man's face, and when he began to speak, it went in his mouth, wiping it with the long sleeve. He spoke. Someone call the police. Please call the police on this man. He's going to kill me. I have no idea what he's talking about. Without a word, the killer stuck him. 
just below the knee on the back of his right leg and said, If anyone ever thinks about grabbing their phone, you will join this man. Then, with attention back on Cecil, Are you sure there's nothing you want to talk about? Crazy. But he could see in the man's eyes, he still thought he was going to be able to talk or buy his way out. So, to prove that would not happen, he took one long swipe down the center of the man's face, cut from the forehead to the chin, then quickly took off his other ear and now shouted, Are you sure? He had been in the room too long already. Three targeted stabs to the heart, and he watched as the smugness left the eyes, and the beast crumbled to the floor. Google his name, Cecil Francis. See what kind of man you chose to hang out with. Say your prayers. Be glad that I showed up, because at least one of you would have been his special friend tonight. And with that, he turned and ran the few steps to the back door. He presumed would lead him down the fire escape, leaving the knife on the couch where it belonged. Between the knife and the choice of his words spoken to the group, he had planned exactly what he needed to put the final nail in Leonard's coffin. Let's stop there for today. We'll find out about lucky number 13 next episode. Thank you so much for listening and have a great day.